0: And welcome to the Plan a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Roster. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture.
0: The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planning and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits.
1: So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us.
0: This podcast is being recorded on March 26th, 2021. Carol Wagner is a longtime horticulturalist at Haverford College in Haverford, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Philadelphia. A lifelong resident of Southeastern Pennsylvania, she graduated from the professional gardening program at Longwood Gardens in Kenneth Square, Pennsylvania. She takes great pride in the history and plantings at Haverford especially the college's great-grandchild of the Penn Treaty Elm. She recently became a founding member of the Newtown Township Shade Tree Commission. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Carol. We're delighted you can join us today. Thank you. Your reputation has been immeasurable when we talk about trees and the saving of the genetic line of the Penn Treaty Elm and how important that is. I know that the elm has been saved in several places, at Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, and Haverford. But can you give us, can you take us back and give us a little bit of a a background on the history of the tree itself? How much time do we have? (laughs) You get started and we'll just,
2: (laughs) we'll just deal with it. So so the original tree Blew over in a storm about March 5th, 1810. This place where the tree, the original tree, had been growing was called Shackamaxon by the the natives. And Shackamaxon meant place to make a king. So it is a place that they would go for treaties, that's a place where they would go if they had to, you know, crown a new chief for one of the tribes. There was very many, there's a lot of tribes um, within the Delaware or the Lenape Indians. This is where they met, and it just so happens that there was this wonderful tree that was growing there. So apparently when it fell over, it was like 283 years old. It took it back to about 1530 is when a little seed, uh, you know, sprout, native little seed sprouted along the banks of the Delaware River. And that tree became this, you know, historic symbol of peace and love and unity throughout the world. And it was... Um, so it's really it's really pretty cool. Now, back in eighteen, in the 1530s, that's when Michelangelo was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. King Henry VIII killed one of his wives so he could marry Jane Seymour, not the, not the actress. Uh, so there were some interesting things that happened, you know, back around that time. But that's when that tree sort of sprouted. Now, when William Penn met with Chief Tamanand and members of the Lenape tribe, to, to present their treaty of peace and, you know, wanting to live in unity with, with the people that, you know, they assumed owned the land, even though Indians do not, um, the Native Americans do not think that they own the land. They think that they live in unity with the earth. But William Penn, you know, in his European method of thinking, thought that they owned it. So he wanted to live in peace. So he, that's when they met, 1682. The tree at that point was about 150 years old. Now, our tree at Haverford is a great grandchild of the tree. Um, the college opened up for business in 1833. Somewhere around 1840, one of the founders of the college, a gentleman by the name of Bartholomew Wister, somehow, and we have no idea how, uh, he acquired a grandchild of the original tree and had it planted on Founders Green in front of the main building around 1840. That tree survived. It died with Dutch elm in, and was removed in 1977. So our grandchild tree was 1840. Somewhere around 1900, there used to be a nursery up in the Germantown section of Philadelphia, and it was Thomas Meehan Nursery. So Thomas Mian had a nursery, and one of the things that he loved to deal with was trees of historical significance. Apparently, he came to Haverford and collected cuttings, I guess, of the 1840 tree. And he grew them up. So that was around 1900, 1905, something like that. In 1914, Bartholomew Wister's grandson Caleb Cresson Wister, who was class of 1896, I think, from Haverford, he acquired, he purchased seven trees from Meehan Nursery and gave them back to the college to be planted as Grandfather Wister would have wanted, which was a circle of six with one in the middle. That's what they did. So he acquired these these saplings. Sometime I'll, I'll send you a picture of a what the, they looked like shortly after they were planted. So there was this seven little saplings that were planted, a circle of six with one in the middle. Well, that was in 1914. In 1950, they were really cool. There's a beautiful winter shot of them. And then Dutch elms sort of moved in, and we kept losing them. Um, in starting in the 1970s, we lost the sixth of the seven trees. We lost the sixth one in 1978, 72, it's in the 70s. Let's put it that way. Leaving just one tree, so I took the photograph of the of 1950s. The cluster in 1950 from down below. I was looking at it. It was a winter shot. No leaves on the on the trees. I went down. And I kept looking from you know all the different trees that were in the picture compared to the photograph. And I finally figured out that it was, you know, it was, it was one of the outer trees on um, the northeast corner. So it was really cool to figure out which tree it was that survived. We do have it treated, injected, to protect it from elm slow necrosis, uh, to protect it from any elm bark beetles that might show up. And we haven't had any sign of the Dutch elm disease, just like COVID. I mean, the disease is still out there, but we're just really lucky that we haven't we haven't had it on, on campus since then. But uh, it's a beautiful tree, and it's you, you could get hundreds of people under that tree. You know, if you went under it, it's uh, it's gorgeous. It has a wonderful canopy. But because it's by itself, um, we let it branch down to the ground, and um, it's it's doing wonderfully.
0: You know what's so fascinating to me is that you are. A spirit that is watching over (laughs) the whole lineage of our country, from William Penn's time to now, and being able to watch over a tree that has so much historical significance, not only here in our country, but also around the world when we think of Benjamin West's painting that was seen, uh, seen globally, it was taken on trips around the world uh, for people to see how impressive the whole um, action of the peace between William Penn and the native population. And that is a really amazing tribute to a living being other than a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I could think of close to this would be the, the great vine of Hampton Court, which was planted there. And I think it's over four or 500 years old and it was wow. uh, preserved and the grapes are still harvested. But to know a tree that is that old, that has such a historical significance. And we, I know we have old trees out on the West Coast But from a historical significance standpoint, this is center foremost for American history.
2: It is neat. One of the really fascinating things about the power of this particular tree, the original tree, was in 1777, back during the Revolutionary War, The British had actually laid siege to Philadelphia. They actually were in charge. So we were under British control for a little period of time. And it was interesting because the British had a fort about what we would call about one and a half city blocks from where the Treaty Elm was growing. There was the fellow that was in charge of that particular fort was a fellow by the name of, I guess he was general at that point, General George Simcoe, S-I-M-C-O-E. And he actually knew of that tree and knew of its importance. And he actually had British soldiers stationed around that tree day and night to protect it. So nobody would, you know, start lopping off limbs for firewood or anything like that. So the British actually protected the Treaty Elm for us, you know, during the Revolutionary War, which I think is really pretty fascinating.
0: I had heard that there was such a shortage of wood at that time, and if it wasn't for that action of, of General Simcoe, that that history would be lost, as you're mentioning. And yeah. that's almost unbelievable, that the yeah. enemy Serious. of uh, the revolutionaries <laughs> is preserving, <laughs> is preserving uh, part of the history. Of course, being a colony, they're also protecting that, so... I I think, you know, well, if we win the war, if the British win the war, they're going to still have the tree because William Penn was... He was a British... Brit... a Quaker. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'll see if I can articulate this because Carol telling her story and realizing how it's so closely tied to American history and pre-American history, but I've never thought all these years, calling myself an arborist, that every old oak tree that I see it didn't get propagated by a nursery person, right? It came up from an acorn, which means a big old oak tree goes all the way back, right? I mean, that acorn came off another tree, which came off another tree. So we're going back to the beginning of green things on our planet. I've never made that association before. Maybe you guys have. You know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, yeah, well, you know, we look at, we look at our own selves of our generations, and we want to know our family tree. We want to know our genetics, we want to know what kind of secrets might be in our past. And some of us, some of us us would rather keep the door closed, right. But the fact of that is that plants have that same lineage. And of course, where we get the name family tree from, is from that exact I want to say visual, of how a tree grows and its roots and its seeds, its propagules that come off of it. And I think that that's something that it translates into every type of living creature on the earth. It's Mm -hmm. just we as humans sometimes don't think that other living beings on earth are as important or as structured from a from a generational standpoint as we are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, you go for a walk, say you're at on the campus and Carol shows you a beautiful oak and it's 40 inches in diameter and she tells you it's 111 years old. I would look at that tree and I'll go, that is an incredible tree, but I wonder what its grandparents were like. (laughs) Because the grandparents were never harvested, you know?
0: Where the grandparents were harvested and all that's left is the grandchild, right?
1: Yeah.
2: So I've done a lot of research on this, like, how to propagate this tree, you know, by cuttings and stuff like that. And it's interesting because you have to do it in June and you have to keep it at 65 degrees. Well, I don't know how many of you realize what the temperature is around here in June. It isn't 65 degrees. Um, So basically, I have had zero luck in 30-some years trying to propagate this tree by cuttings. But it is wind-pollinated, and it is interesting because upwind of this particular tree, there are no other elms. And any elms that are upwind of this particular tree are children of this particular (laughs) tree. So one of the things that I've done, rather than, you know, trying to fight Mother Nature... And trying to figure out, it was like, okay, how can I propagate this thing when the conditions are just boggle the mind and just refuse to co- coordinate with me? So I let the tree do the work. So the tree, um, is, a matter of fact, it's in full flower right now, and it's going to seed real soon, and it's going to spread all these seeds. And by the summer, I'm going to have little um, half-inch baby trees coming up all underneath this, underneath this tree. So what I do each year is I go through, I take a can of spray paint out and I see a little cluster of baby elms and I put a circle around it. And I saw I have little spray painted circles under the tree in the wood chips. And then when I have a student, we go out one day and we just go through and we dig these all up. We do about 60, I guess, every year. And uh, we pot them up and grow them up. And uh, the one that was planted down at Penn Treaty Park in 2010, was one that I propagated from a tiny little half inch little baby coming up under the tree, and um, so the one at Penn treaty park now is uh, is a baby off of ours um, we 've got other um, elms on campus that are babies of this particular tree it 's documented all the way along on you know where the um, the parents of the parents of the parents came from and it, it's it 's fascinating there's we sort of are we don't hand out tree seedlings to anybody, but we, we sort of evaluate uh, where they want to put it, why they want to use it, why they want one. Uh, there's not many people that we turn down as far as for the trees, but they are a valuable historical asset. And we've given to uh, Native American um, organizations, we've given a lot to uh, Quaker meeting houses are one of the biggest things, um, other Quaker schools we have. A letter that accompanies it, and a label, and the letter goes and it tells you what tells what the history is of the tree, and it's then it says you know it's like your seedling is you know of this particular tree. Oh,
0: uh, have they been used for the elm project where they're uh, working with creating new varieties that are resistant? No, not that I know of. Nobody
2: has come to me about that. One of the things I've always wanted to try or to have somebody try, people each have their own genetic fingerprint. I've always wondered whether the elms, whether trees have their own fingerprint, and whether testing material from a tree that we know is a direct descendant of the original elm, whether we can tell if if you have a, a couple of elms growing someplace and you're pretty sure that one of them might be a descendant, whether you could test it to find out if it was. Uh, we apparently do not have the genetic testing material at the college or have had anybody that stepped up to say they would love to try it. But one of the interesting things, if you go up to Penn Treaty Park and you're standing out of the road looking into the park, over on the left-hand side, there's a whole bunch of trees. And a couple of them are American elms. So whether those particular trees are descendants of the original elm that was there, whether they're seedlings that popped up, you know, I don't know. But I know there's other elms at the park that I didn't to give them to them. I mean, they're older than me. But there's other American elms at Penn treaty Park. But I don't know if they're descendants of the treaty elm or not.
0: That's really fascinating. I find the whole... Pen Treaty area to be quite fascinating too. The the bottom land next to the river is where tr- the elm grows the best anyway, and I'm thinking to myself that that is a is a really wonderful place for discovery. The tree that's there now was very very large when it fir- when it first went in back in 2010. Yeah, it was about yeah it was about 18 to 20 feet yeah. It was very large. So how old was that when that went in? It was probably about 20
2: years old. It was probably um, a plant that I started back in around 1990 or a little, it Had can't be much before 1990. So it was probably about 20 years old. So back in 2010, we were celebrating the 200th anniversary of the demise of the original tree and um, you did the friday lecture at the flower show thursday night was to exhibit at the pennsylvania horticultural society in philadelphia and on saturday first was an event at the art street meeting house followed by another event at Penn Park. Well, it was interesting because when I was, we were at the Art Street Meeting House and I gave, um, I presented uh, babe, uh, seedlings. They were about a foot, 18 inches tall, one to the Quakers and another one to the Indians. So I gave one to Chief Gould and the other one went to Nancy Gibbs. And afterwards, there was a whole big ceremony and, you know, reception and stuff. And that's when John Connors from Penn Treaty Park came up to me and he goes, Carol, Carol, <laughs> we need your help. We think that tr- our tree at Penn Treaty Park is dead. So we're not sure, but we think it is. But it was March, so nobody could tell if it was really dead or not because, you know, it hadn't leafed out yet anyway. So I left the meeting a little early and headed up, you know, found my way up to Penn Treaty Park. I had not been there before. I had to find my way up to Penn Treaty Park. I came to this one street and I had to go left because if I went straight, I'd end up on 95 going south. I turned left, and there in front of me is the sculpture of Chief Taminant, which is an amazing bronze sculpture, and it's right there at the end of Market Street, right by, you know, right up overlooking 95. It's really amazing. Anyhow, found my way up to Penn Treaty Park, looked at the tree. Tree's, tree is dead. Um, Dutch elm disease had gotten it. Two months later was when we put the new tree in, and we go up, we take the, pick one of the trees that we had at the campus. First, we had to get the tree spade to dig a hole to put it in well all that prop, most of that property at Pentry park is fill the river used to be right up near where the road is and with all of the different thing the history of that whole area and whatever businesses were there over the centuries it just got filled in and the fella had the hardest time trying to pull a plug of soil from the park because of dutch elm It's a disease that gets into the plant. It got down into the roots and everything. So you couldn't plant another tree right in the same root zone as the one that died because the disease would just be transmitted to the new tree and it would die. Plus the tree had been in this raised bed and the tree spade couldn't deal with planting another tree into the raised bed. So he goes, well, we're gonna forget that. We'll just keep working our way down towards the river so we can find a place where we can get the blades into the ground with that tree spade jumping all over the place. Finally managed to get, you know, all four blades into the ground and pulled the plug. It was crazy. Um, you could tell it was filled. There was a piece of creosoted railroad tie sticking out one side of the of the ball. And it was a bent up piece of uh, rebar sticking out the other side. And it was dripping all sorts of strange water Um, And that's where the tree got planted and it's doing fine, but it was so funny just trying to find, I think he tried eight different spots before he finally pulled enough of a plug that he could, you know, took that plug back to the college and then brought the tree down and put it in. And it's been doing great.
0: Hal, you should see how big that um, tree spade was to get the tree in. Oh, really? It was was a size one. Yeah. It was a 60
1: inch,
2: I think it was a five footer. So it's a, dug a five foot wide ball. Amazing.
0: And and the other thing is too, I still have pictures of that. From I actually sent Carol a picture with her <laughs> and Pastor Norwood. The uh, Lenape Lenape uh, minister came and did a a smudging for the tree and uh, tobacco ceremony. It was very very impressive.
1: Oh, terrific.
0: Well, I know when we went to
2: plant it, I mean, it was it was just going to be planted. And um, I actually contacted Pastor Norwood and said, I said, you yeah, know, we're planting, putting a new tree in Pentreedy Park. And he goes, um, I said, I think you should be there to bless it. He goes, I'll be there. <laughs> so, yeah, he did come to bless the tree. And that was that was wonderful. Nice. He Great is a sweet, he's a sweet man. He sure is. Chief Gould and other members of the Lenny Lenape of South Jersey. I really don't know um, the Lenape of Pennsylvania at all, but I do know the ones from South Jersey. And they, they said, you know, it's like, uh, what does William Penn have to do with it? He said it was our tree long before he ever came around. So I, you know, in my own um, conversations, I dropped the Penn part and I just call it the treaty elm.
1: I did take a quick look. It does look like the Elm Research Institute is still alive and well out there. And uh, it also looks like they may have changed their name uh, to the Liberty Tree Research Institute, but I didn't wanna get caught up. But uh, Carol, you haven't really had much interaction with them? None at all. Okay.
2: So whether they've approached the Arboretum, I have no idea. They haven't contacted me at all. But, yeah, I know there are elms out there that are resistant or claim to be resistant. All I know is ours seems to be a survivor where all of its brothers and sisters are gone. It's still hanging in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be neat. I wouldn't, wouldn't mind having a conversation with them and having them come look at mine and, you know, check it out.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, it kind of reminds me of the big elm that's at Longwood Gardens. Of course, you went to Longwood Gardens, and yeah. you're a student from Longwood Gardens, the one that survived the Dutch elm disease there, and they believe it was because it was on the other side of the walkway that it wasn't intertwined root-wise with the rest of them. That could and be. that was a survivor, and it's still hanging on really fairly well. I mean, it, they too, they really love that tree at Longwood. They yeah give it a lot of love and TLC but there's also another one that was planted in 1912 at the Glenside train station. I used to live in Glenside and that tree is still going strong. It's one one of the ones that when they say there's three forms of the elm there's Mm -hmm. one that suckers a lot and then there's one that has the beautiful cathedral-like structure without the suckering and then there's the really wide low ones that we typically would see and those you typically see along a river because of the wind they usually grow lower but um the one at the glenside train station is a suckering one and it really it's beautiful every time Mm -hmm. i drive by can't help but look at that tree and say wow you survived
1: yeah
2: well there's a couple of interesting trees Uh, one of the ones so basically in the history of the elm when the original tree blew over in a storm in March of 1810, there was the fella that owned the property where the tree had been standing. And one of the things that he, you know, apparently people told him, that thing is going to fall over, you better prop it up, and he didn't. So when it did fall over, he apparently went out, rumor has it, he went out with a shovel and ch- cut off a chunk of the tree at the base, sort of like one of the suckers, dug off a piece of the tree with some roots and grew that. And so all the other elms that we have around the, the nation now are from that particular chunk. And he gave it to his son-in-law who took it up to New York State. He moved that tree when it was about 20-so years old, about, Yeah, about 1830. He moved it up to New York State. Then his son actually had the thing dug and transported by sled, horses, barge, had it transported back to Wilkesbury, And it was growing near their family home up in Wilkesbury. But it died in, the last time it leafed out was 1954. Things were taken from that tree. And I think that's where our 1840 tree came from, which is how we got the tree that we have now. But there's also another fascinating one. I went to University of Pennsylvania. I'm sort of walking around looking and I see this really cool sculpture um, in the middle of a big triangular area of Ben Franklin. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And so I walked over to look at that. And it was like looking past Ben Franklin. I'm looking like, well, there's the elm. know, <laughs> Just by looking at the shape of it, I knew it was there. And it was actually planted that one was planted 1896 or something for Governor Hastings of Pennsylvania was there for the planting of that particular tree, but it was like planted in like the 1890s. So it's really cool. I mean, there's, you know, elms popping up all over the place that are, you know, historical and related.
0: It's funny because uh, they didn't even know that Haverford has the genetics from the, they thought that they were the only ones that had Penn Treaty Elm. big. Most people also don't know about the Penn Treaty Museum that now exists down by the park, founded by a whole group of people, including John Connors, collecting parts of the original tree, anything that related to the Penn Treaty elm, including ink wells that were made from the tree, the desk that uh, John F. Kennedy sat at in the Oval Office was made from the Penn Treaty elm. I think there was also an inkwell that was given to Thurgood Marshall as a as a gift to him. Uh, so there was a lot of different things that were made from the wood of the tree so that they could preserve these in in perpetuity as as historical objects from the tree itself.
2: Yeah, I've been there a number of times. It's fascinating. So John Connors, I think came for it was he. Did he grow up in a different section of Philadelphia or did he come from Jersey? I forget. Well, he was—he moved to that area when he was a young man, you know, late teen, early, you know, in his 20s or something. And he loved sports and he wanted to play baseball. And he saw this park at the end, you know, by the river and he goes, oh, this would be great. He goes, I wonder if we can build a, a, a ballpark here. He was trying to push for that. And someone said, you know, it's like, do you know the history of this area? And he said, no. And somebody told him about William Penn, the Elm, and, you know, Chief Tamman and the history of this particular area. And he actually fell in love with it to the point that anything that ever comes up for sale having to do with Kensington, the history of that area, the Elm, the treaty, any sort of thing. And just like he goes for it whenever he can get it. So he's got some fascinating stuff there. Uh, last time I was there, they even had an exhibit because there was a big, there was an archaeological project going along because they were doing something, they were widening 95 or something up in that area. And so before the paving would start, they had a an archaeological team come in and to see what kind of things that they could, you know, locate to save and protect. So he had all sorts of interesting Native American artifacts and arrowheads and pottery and all sorts of really cool stuff that he, that was uh, discovered during that 95 enlargement project. And, you know, that was on exhibit too. He just does a great job with it.
0: Yeah, he does. And that that dates back. I think they, 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 the, the archeologist said that it went back. uh, There was a civilization there since uh, like 3000 years ago.
2: Yeah. Not surprised.
0: our, our region is rich with historical artifacts, and most people don't even know it. Yeah. Right. What's underneath their feet, they don't even know. That's for sure.
2: The elm is extremely important. Um, I love to protect it. I keep an eye on it uh, to you know, make sure that any dead wood is uh, removed and um, keep, keep it uh, wood chipped and you know, just uh, keep, keep protecting it. And it was sort of funny because the, you know, because of uh, Dutch elm disease, um, the arborist says, well, you shouldn't be pruning it when it's in leaf. You know, you could attract the, the, the elm bark beetle. And um, so I said, well, when can I prune it? He said, November. Wonderful. Um, so, uh, but it was sort of interesting because uh, last year with the, the lockdown everything else, I came in, went to look at the tree and it was like there was leaves on the whole thing except for the bottom four feet because the deer had come through and nibbled everything off down below. Um, so that was sort of fun. It's like nobody told the deer they're not supposed to touch it until November. But um, yeah, the, so, but the uh, the elm is, you know, always a, a, a thing that I have to be um, aware of when I'm working, but I have a lot of other plants and areas um, that I have to help maintain and take care of. As a matter of fact, we had a uh, tree risk assessment done in 2017, um, which was uh, a fabulous, um, all-encompassing tree risk assessment by uh, Rockwell Associates, and um, their recommendations were amazing, and they went through, and there was this one section of woodland um, that had a lot of trees that were dangerous for one reason or another. And a lot of them were supposed to be removed. Um, and a couple of them just didn't even wait for the chainsaw. They just decided to come down on their own. But we had a lot of stuff taken out, and it made it so open. So this became a, um, a native tree restoration area for me. So I've planted about 50 different native trees. A little, Some are big. Um, we had some tree, tree spaded in that were bigger and we also did a lot of, uh, smaller, younger trees and they're all in, uh, tubes. Um, they're in these tree tubes, which are made of, uh, recycled milk bottles. So there's all these white tubes. As a matter of fact, we're an arboretum, but that particular area of the campus, I call it the tuberetum because <laughs> you just see all these white tubes throughout the whole thing, uh, which is really fascinating and, um, I'm anxious to see how well, uh, how well they do. Um, there's some native trees in there that I've, you know, there's a lot of trees that were saved, um, that didn't have to be removed, but the ones that were removed and now we've got a whole bunch of new stuff coming up and I'm very excited to see if I can, uh, you know, get this thing, uh, to a point where it can maintain itself. So
1: that'd be cool. That's very exciting. Did you, um, what, what is your strategy, Carol, with uh, the forest floor? Are you just going to let the trees do their thing, or do you have uh, invasive herbaceous material that you have to deal with?
2: Oh, we got all sorts of stuff. In this particular one section, um, there's a lot of different um, things that are um, growing on the ground level. Uh, the only one that's native is poison ivy. <laughs> So all the rest of it is going to, you know, probably going to be chemically treated to try to um, eliminate the things that are taking over, um, at which point once they get that pretty much under control, um, you know, I can see, get a lot of, um, you know, native uh, wildflowers and other things, you know, getting so that they retain it. Um, half of that woodland is, um, when I let it grow, uh, before I started the project, was seven foot tall forest of it was about a quarter acre seven foot tall forest of uh, Japanese knotweed so that's um so that's been fun to you know chop that down and keep after that and try to make that all go away um so I have a couple years of uh uh, eradication before I can do much more planting other than trees but uh yeah it's hope I'm hopeful
0: there, there was one thing before we go that um, the alley that you come down when you enter the college. Mm-hmm. Um, are you still repurposing or adding new trees into that alley? Because I know that some of them had to come down. So the um, the alley that we put in along College Lane. Now the
2: College Lane trees were all uh, red maples. Oh, no, not red oaks. Sorry, red oaks, Quercus rubra. And, um, one of the big problems that we have right now is, um, the bacterial leaf scorch. And of course, being a monoculture, it just spreads from one tree to the next. Um, so we actually went through, um, about three years ago now, I think it was, and we made a collect, we made an assortment of trees. I think we had six different trees or five or six different trees, um, except for, I think Willow oak is the only thing that's actually in the black or red oak family. Everything else is in the white family. Um, So we went through and alternated, you know, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. And we planted in 40, 44 trees or something, um, you know, half on each side. And so we went through and replanted the LA um, just, you know, about six feet further away from the road um, for salt and all that. And we put them in and then as the bigger, older trees Um, reach the point where we have to remove them, we will. Um, But as long as they're there, they can stay. Um, So we just had three of them removed not too long ago. Uh, But interestingly, we're about to do the same thing over on um, Walton Road, which is the road that exits um, onto Railroad Avenue. Um, So it's sort of the other entrance to the campus. And it has a lot of large... um, Quercus macrocarpus, uh, not macrocarpus, sorry. uh, Quercus bicolor, um, the swamp white oak. Um, There's a lot of those, but they're they're in between parking spaces. And we had to have one removed and the one two up from it was hit lightly by lightning um, this past year. So, you know, we started to worry about it. So we're actually going through. And similarly to what we did on College Lane and going through and we're planting a new LA um, a little further in a little further away from the road so as those trees have to go they go and we've got already got a new LA started so um, yeah we're trying to work on keeping some of the historical significance of um, of the campus Um, goes back to William Carville when he arrived in uh, 1834 for 10 years and planted most of the uh, big old trees that we have on campus now. So, um, it's a historical restoration of the campus pretty much.
1: Does the college grow some of its own trees? Do you have a little nursery going in some fashion?
2: No, we have a small area that's fenced in. And basically we, we purchase things that other people have grown. Uh, we basically for 210 acres, we have a grounds crew of three. And a horticultural crew of four, so or we're a little understaffed we don't have we don't grow our own annuals either. Um, we do have a lot of tropicals that we overwinter from year to year in the greenhouses and stuff, but we do not have the manpower or the time to uh, go through and do all that. so uh, we let somebody who does a good job on growing trees to do the growing, and we'll just uh, take care of them once we get. That's good, yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Carol. And we typically ask the question, what's your favorite tree? But should we ask? <laughs> I don't think so. It, it, or should it we? Is, I
2: mean, I even have the necklace that I wear, uh, which I can't even see I it with see the background. It. <laughs> um, is uh, some people say, oh, it's the tree of life. And I'm, but um, actually, to me, it's the, the treaty elm, and I got it about uh, four years ago at the flower show. But, uh, yeah, I do, love, I do love the tree elm. Uh, my other favorite uh, tree is, um, is the, the big macrocarpa, uh, the Quercus macrocarpa, the baroque. We have a couple of old ones that are originals to the original planting in the 1830s. So, yeah, so I got a couple of favorites.
1: One of my favorite uh, elm tchotchkes is I got from, we mentioned the uh, Canopy Conference that, that you host every year. Do you remember when you were handing out the little cookie slot? They were about as big as yep. a chocolate chip cookie. Uh, they're on the kitchen table. They they hold our coffee mugs every morning, two of them. Oh, that big. oh wonderful. They didn't check at all. Uh, I did put a, a coating of, of uh, orange oil or something like that. But oh, neat. It's a sweet little uh, thing to look at every morning.
2: Well, when I have to do any pruning or if any pruning is done, I save a couple of nice logs. And I, you know, I put them in the pole barn and they dry out for a couple of years. And then when I need uh, cookies for a certain event, then I go take it over. And I have by then it's all dried out enough that it won't check. Then I go and I make a new batch of cookies to hand out.
0: But, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a cool thing. Yeah, it is. And for our listeners, uh, in case you don't know what a cookie is, it's a slice of a tree and it's used for all kinds of things. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Carol. Uh, this was really wonderful, as always. It's always yeah, great, great hanging out with you and on
1: a beautiful spring afternoon.
0: Yes, it certainly
1: yep. is beautiful.
0: And continued success with all of your work that you do to preserve our heritage, our American heritage. It's really important, and we thank yeah, I you for a that.
1: Lot. Thanks so much, Carol.
0: Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye.
2: us <tries> at